Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. So I used to do this thing when I was a kid where I would, I don't recommend this, by the way, for children and parents. Parents, make sure your children are not doing this. But I would climb out the window of my room, and I would climb up on the roof, and I would lay on the roof of my house, and I would just look at the stars. I loved it so much. There was always this thing that I couldn't figure out about what the stars were doing because when you looked at them, it appeared that they were all on the same spatial plane, like all in the same space, even though I knew that there were just miles and miles of distance between these points of light. And so I had this kind of spatial confusion. And then this year, I'll I'll never forget this year, my dad, um, not this year, but the year my dad bought us a telescope which, by the way, very magical gift. If you don't know what to get your kids for Christmas, your last minute, you can always get them a telescope. It is a great gift. But um, I loved the telescope because it allowed me to do something I had never been able to do before, which is I could distinguish how far away certain things were and which things were close and which things were far. And then these stars that were so distant that I wanted to see, I was able to see them for the first time because the telescope brought them close to me. And so when we look at this passage this morning from Isaiah that we heard read, um, it's kind of similar to that. Isaiah is talking about multiple comings of the kingdom of God to earth, and they're all kind of smashed up together. They all seem like they're on the same plane, and it's kind of hard to tell what's close to us and what's really far away. What has happened already and what has not happened yet. And so Isaiah is like, his prophecy is like this telescope that brings these visions near so that we can see them closely, even when they feel really far away. So we see these different comings of the kingdom. We see um, the Israelites returning to the land of captivity in Babylon. But we see more than that. We also see the coming of the messianic kingdom and the ushering in of the kingdom of God on earth. And alongside that, we see another advent, which is so bright. Um, It's an advent in which the curses of Genesis 3 are systematically dismantled and reversed, in which Adam's curse on labor is undone so that work is no longer exploitative or futile. And Eve's curse is unwound so that the pain that comes from bearing and raising children just dissolves. There's no more getting old. Like the days of a tree will the days of my people be. There's, there's no more, you know, death itself is dead in this creation. Um, nature animal and human is transformed forever. And as I'm giving this litany of these bright promises, I know some of you have already kind of started tuning it out, (laughs) which is what I do. Because when I hear promises like this that are so different from the reality in which we live, I wonder how it is possible to hope for something that seems so impossible. How are we supposed to hold on to this thing that feels so far away? How can this hope become something that actually bears the real weight of our longing, 
whenever I have questions like this, like real questions about how you actually live in the world as God's people, I like to turn to the Psalms because that is the voice of God's people responding to him in really honest ways, you know, with open love for him and desire, but also confusion and frustration and sometimes even something that's like kind of bordering on hostility toward God. It's honest. It's the honest reaction. And so this morning, we're going to look at the psalm that we've already gotten to sing and chant. We're going to go into it in the word Psalm 126, because it is there that we learn how God's people hope honestly. They hope by dreaming, by weeping, and by sowing. So let's get into it. Psalm 126. First, dreaming. The people in Psalm 126 are similar to you and me in at least two very important aspects. The first is that, like us, they have to learn to hope while living in the midst of God's promises, some of which have come true and some of which definitely haven't yet. You'll notice something kind of interesting with the verb tenses in 126. They're, they're constantly shifting, and so it can be hard to know where is the psalm even located in time and space. It kind of goes back and forth. So in verse 1, we have the past tense. The psalmist is talking about what God has already done. They say, God restored the fortunes of Zion. Now, this is about God bringing his people back from captivity in Babylon. The thing that Isaiah was looking forward to has happened here. Um, But then later in verse 4, the verb has changed, and the poet is now asking God, either now in or in the future, to restore the fortunes of Zion. So it's the same, same verb, different tense. It's almost as if this amazing thing that's happened, this miracle God brought out of captivity was good, but it wasn't the fullest restoration that Israel was looking forward to. There was more for God to do. So there is a note in my study Bible that suggests the fullness of this restoration requires something more than just going back to the land, than just going home. It says that something was missing because God's covenantal presence was still needed with the people. You see, the remnant of Israel had moved back to the land, and yeah, that was a miracle. Who could have imagined it? But when they moved back home, their home was destroyed. The temple was like a pile of rubble. The glory of God was absent. The covenantal relationship had ruptured. Was it ruptured beyond repair? We don't know. Conquer and exile had left the land broken and barren. So when they looked around, God's people while thankful, could only see desolation around them. In um, Ezra's account of the rebuilding of the temple, he has this really beautiful vignette where as the foundations of the temple are being laid, most people are rejoicing. (laughs) They're shouting with joy. But then there are the old men who are weeping because they see how much has been destroyed. Ezra says, The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouts from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And this is another thing that we have in common with the people of Psalm 126. When we look around, what do we see? 
there's very little evidence in the world to indicate that we are headed in the direction of restoration and renewal, headed toward this new heaven and new earth. And I couldn't have been more conscious as I was putting this sermon together that while Isaiah's passage talks about the people of Jerusalem being a joy and his prophetic promise concludes with this vision that all violence will cease, um, that neither animals nor humans will kill or destroy on God's holy mountain, that what we see every day, the pictures that we see in our newsfeed about what's happening in Gaza could not contradict this hope more. Of course, what's happening in Gaza is also happening all around us all the time. You know, 2,000 years after the death of Christ, the world is still plagued by death. Tim Mackey um, when he's preaching on Isaiah, he says that this fact is why Christian hope is different from optimism. Optimism looks at the facts. He says it sees a cup half full, it interprets the data, it builds its case for hope based on reason that human history is trending overall in a good direction and will continue to do so. But Christian hope is not like that. We have hope when there is no reason for optimism in the present. The nature of this hope is contained in that beautiful, beautiful word in the first verse of 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. The word is dream. In other words, friends, if you are finding it hard to have hope right now, it's not because there's something wrong with your eyes. It's because you're trying to hope in the same way that the world does. Now that hope can't help you. Data, the data out there, are not pointing toward restoration. So what do we do? Instead of looking at the data, we set our eyes on the coming of Christ. We know that he will come, even though it's at a time we can't foretell, we can't see it coming. We long for it. We look for it. But we know that when he comes in glory, we will be like those who dream. Because as impossible as it seems, this ravaged earth that our eyes see will be transformed and made new. It will. We'll be like Mary in the garden on that morning when Jesus was resurrected. Just like sleepwalkers unable to put together an intelligible sentence because we will be living in a reality where dead people come back to life and the curse is gone forever. And when I think about this, actually, this is the way God always has done it. It's the way he's always done it. I mean, who have imagined the rescue from the flood, the exodus from Egypt, the release from captivity? These are unexpected things. Reality was not pointing in that direction. Who could have thought, who could have dreamed or imagined that God would free his people from sin and death by coming down himself and bearing those things in his body? So now, as Paul says, while all the signs point toward disaster, while we are outwardly wasting away, though we even feel in our own bodies that we are perishing, Hope is not lost because the Spirit is renewing us 
from the inside. Because Jesus came to rescue us and will come again. And this dreamlike hope is looking at the world not with our eyes, but by the revelation of the Spirit of God that is within us. The Spirit, then, is like our telescope. It brings the light of new creation near to us, that star that is so far off. It shows it to us. And thus we move through the world like dreamers. We're dreaming about the world to come. While we dream and while we wait, we hope by doing something that does not at all look like hoping. We weep. Keep thinking about um, those old men that were weeping when the temple foundations were laid, just crying because of all that was lost, because of human rebellion and the death that it brought along in its wake. I don't, I don't want you guys to mishear me. We dream of the world to come, but we still live in this world. <laughs> and that is a necessarily painful experience. Um, my spin instructor, Bakari, He's always saying this thing that I think is really helpful. <laughs> he says, if you're not in pain, that means you're not doing it right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Psalm 126, it acknowledges that. Where does it locate our life? Where does it set our life? It no locates it in the Negeb, in the desert that's Spurs 4. The region of the Negeb was just like this arid wasteland. Okay, in the biblical imagination, the desert is all the difficulties of human life. It's a place of lack, scarcity, temptation, trial. It's a place where plants can't grow and people die of thirst and of hunger. It's a place where you get hopelessly lost. It is a place where there are wild animals that want to kill you. This is the vision of the world. And as Christians, we can't help but acknowledge that this world around us has been laid waste. And we're not supposed to look away from that. Even though it is so painful, it hurts us to look at it. And T. Wright, he actually makes the case that this looking and this hurting, this kind of gut-wrenching crying, will not even come into speech, that is the most hopeful thing we can do. In conversation with Preston Sprinkle, Wright said that it's actually the church's calling to lament like this. Because when the people of God, you and me, people of God, who are dwelt with the Holy Spirit, cry out in intercession for the world, when they mourn its sorrow and they beg for its restoration, then God himself is in the heart of his creation crying out. Let me say that again. When we who are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit mourn and groan, God the Holy Spirit is using us so that he can groan at the heart of his broken creation. Tears like that are incarnational. They are God being with us and interceding on behalf of the world that he loves. And this is not suffering for no reason. This isn't just despair, okay? We don't hope like the world, we don't despair like the world. We know that when we cry out, we're helping a new world to get born. I know that sounds kind of weird and crazy, but that's how Paul talks about it in Romans 8. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. So our pains are not pointless, friends. They're like the pains of childbirth. You know, I remember when I was giving birth to Jonah, second time mom, I had an epidural the first time around. The second time I was like, I'm going to do this the real way. I'm going to give birth naturally. Um, I don't know if that was a good idea or not, but I remember giving birth. Friends, I was convinced, convinced I was going to die. The pain was so intense and so unbearable. And anecdotally, it's like this for a lot of moms when they give birth. When you are howling with speechless words, that exact feeling that, yes, I am going to die, that is what comes right before the baby is born. And so when we take on the pain of the world, the travail, when we groan with all of creation and with God himself in hope, we can have that hope because we know he's about to create something new. Now, when I read this psalm, I can't help but notice um, the imagery. It's a literary person. There's all this imagery of tears and it's mixed with water and with seeds it's almost as if this kind of lamenting is integrated with the third way that we hope which is hoping by sowing by planting seeds just as we live in a reality of a world cursed with violence which we move through by dreaming and of crying out for christ's return we live in the barrenness of a reality that is cursed with futility, with labor that is wasted, rocky and thorny soil that just keeps fighting back. And hope helps us to move through that too. As we dream of this divine reversal, that's how the psalm imagines God coming for the sudden streams in the Negev. We join our tears to the rain that comes down from heaven. Now, this little word streams here in verse 4, it's a beautiful picture. It's um, something called a wadi, a dry riverbed. It's dry all the time, except for when it suddenly fills with water. And when it fills with water, it brings green life to the earth. In that same interview that I mentioned earlier with N.T. Wright and Preston Sprinkle, um, Wright points out the church laments for the world, and in lamenting for the world, it does not abandon the world. The church just doesn't say, like, we're going to go to heaven someday, so we don't care about the rest of you. You can all just burn. We don't care about this earth that has been ravaged. No. The earth um, is the place where the church chooses to plant its seeds of hope. Right here. Right here in this land. We believe that heaven will come to us to this earth, and in fact, we believe that heaven already has come to earth, and that we are a people in whom the curse is already being reversed. When we dream with Isaiah of the wolf and the lamb grazing together and the lion doing this crazy thing, eating straw like an ox, we have hope in part because we have begun to see transformations like this already in ourselves, and we have seen God do it. If anyone is in Christ, she is a new creation. He is a new creation. 
As water flows in the desert, living water flows from our hearts. Jesus, people of compassion, forgiveness, people turn away from anything that destroys the creatures of God, from our anger and our lust and our pride. And we are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation living together in unity under the gracious rule of God as king. This is how the church becomes a witness to the world. Because we're not just supposed to be a people who hope. We're supposed to be a people who give hope to others. And how can the world have hope? You know, they have the same eyes that we do. They're seeing the same data. You know, They're looking around. They're seeing destruction. How can they believe that there will be a new heavens and a new earth? They will believe when they see the church living as those who have been made new. That is the sign of the present, in the present time of what God intends to do for all of creation. Now, of course, none of this is of our own power. It's not something that we bring about. It's something that God does, you know? Beginning of Isaiah, behold, I am about to create a new heavens and new earth. We can't even create our own hope, friends. That is the work of the Spirit. And it's the same Spirit that revealed the truth to Isaiah. And it's the same Spirit of revelation that we can have. And the same Spirit of hope. And so now I pray, as Paul prays in his letter to the Ephesians, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. And now, come, Holy Spirit, come, Spirit of hope. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.